Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. And on today's show, I have John Haber and Kim McQuilkin from Spend Management Experts. And I'll start the show off by congratulating you guys on all of your, your recent accolades. I found you from uh, Atlanta Business Chronicle's Fast 100 pay setter list. And then most recently, I think in the past week, you've been awarded the um, one of the best places to work in Atlanta. And then, um, John, you've received the Entrepreneur of the Year Award from um, TIE. So congratulations on all your successes, John and Kim. It's great to have you on the show. And um, I always start the show off by asking my guests, what are some trends in your industry that you think are important for other CEOs to, to know about? So I'll toss that over to you, John. Well, the, there's a couple trends that are that are going on within the uh, transportation industry. Uh, so far this year, there's been tremendous consolidation within the transportation industry. Uh, UPS has recently acquired Coyote Logistics, uh, which really gives them a, a, a strong foothold in the full truckload market. Uh, most people think of UPS as a uh, as a parcel carrier, so they've really are expanding into different modes of transportation. Uh, just last week, XPO Logistics acquired Conway, which is uh, one of the largest LTL providers, and and that makes XPO Logistics uh, quickly one of the, the the second largest, less than truckload provider in. Uh, in the U.S. and uh, for those just a, a jargon watch here for people who are not familiar with the acronyms, if you wouldn't mind telling us what L, you know LPL is. Yeah, LTL is less than truckload shipping. So uh, if you think of a, a full truck, full truckload would mean that all of the all of the freight on the truck is uh, for one company. Less than truck road would be a palletized shipment, but it would be moving on a truck. And would be mixed in with freight from other shippers. Great. And so, what do you think is driving the consolidation? Why why is this consolidation happening now? I think that uh, companies are really looking for a one stop shop. One of the problems that our companies, uh, our clients face, is that they are using you know fifteen, twenty different providers. And trying to manage that many different providers is very complex just from an operational standpoint, but also from an accounting standpoint. You've got different invoicing and different billing processes. Trying to get it, all that information into one uh, ERP system is complex. And so in many cases, dealing with a one-stop solution is much easier than using many, many solutions. Mm-hmm. And, and Kim, as, as COO, you know, seeing observing all this consolidation, how is this changing your, your business and your practice? Well, I think from, uh, and, you know, we talked earlier that uh, <clears throat> my major responsibilities are on the sales and marketing side. And with what's happening in the industry is when you're calling on supply chain executives, they're being hammered by all kinds of service providers, <clears throat> excuse me, out there. And so you really have to refine your messaging to cut through the clutter that uh, supply chain executives have knocking on their door every week. Mm. And um, we, you talked about UPS and, you know, a little bit about the fact that they've been losing market share to uh, FedEx for the past um, past 20 years. 
what do you think is you know driving driving their loss in market share, and do you have a sense of whether or not this acquisition is going to help them? Well, UPS has been losing ground market share. Uh, so just want to clarify that it's it's really on ground shipping. And UPS, uh, over the last 50, 60 years, they've been the dominant player in ground shipping. And so the base that they had, it's much easier to chip away when you have s- uh, such a dominant position in the marketplace. Financially, uh, what makes things a little bit easier for FedEx is they have a contractor model. They're not employees. And on the, so on, when it comes to the benefits, the, their cost structure is significantly lower than UPS, who's the largest employer of Teamsters in the, in the, in the, in the U.S. So their benefit, their overall benefits cost is much lower. They can price differently. In addition, uh, FedEx, is a work share relationship with the United States Post Office and where the USPS does the last mile delivery. And that's the cost, costliest part of a, of a shipment is the last mile delivery, especially on residential deliveries. Because in general, the driver is only delivering one package as opposed to a commercial delivery where they may be delivering three packages. UPS has been forced to uh, enter that marketplace. They also have a work relationship, uh, work share relationship with the United States Post Office. But the, the FedEx war, uh, relationship has been much longer and, uh, there's significantly more volume moving through that channel. Yeah. So, you know, our listeners are typically, typically going to be in the mid market, right? They're, you know, up to a hundred million dollars in revenue. What are some of the implications of the, this consolidation in the marketplace for people who may have um, third-party logistics or shipping as a part of their business model, but who, they're not massive companies like some of the companies you work with? Well, the that's a great question, and th- I try. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> there's some benefits and there's some potential risks uh, when there are less players. Uh, there are less options. And so when you see consolidation, uh, you may see that uh, price, prices go up. And so there are concerns that as there becomes a smaller universe of uh, people to choose from, prices go up. And however, uh, one of the advantages is that uh, you can go to a one-stop shop. Uh, people historically did not look at UPS for truckload movements, which is uh, the movement of dedicated freight. And now with the acquisition of Coyote Logistics, uh, UPS Supply Chain Solutions has that in their portfolio. So they can handle your parcel shipping. They can handle your air freight. They can handle your less than truckload shipping. And now they can handle your full truckload shipping. So you, you can really look at them as a holistic solution for the mid-market. And by the way, the mid-market is really who we like working with. Okay. Um, the, we have a lot of Fortune 500 companies, but navigating through the Fortune 500, the sales cycle is generally much longer. They have uh, much larger staffs, and uh, they tend to have larger egos, and uh, uh, perhaps don't think that they need the assistance of an outside consultant in some areas. Mm-hmm. So go ahead, Kim. Well, I, I think also to add to that, the mid-market companies are more streamlined to adapt to the consolidation. So there's less layers, as John mentioned, and, and it's easier from, uh, for us from an entry standpoint on the sales side. 
Now, um, you know, as we as you think about, you know, mid-market, mid-market players, you mentioned that there might be some upward pricing, upper pricing pressure. And is that something that you're seeing? I mean, I would think that prices would there would be downward pressure on prices with the the decreasing cost of fuel. The the there is Kim is wagging his head. Yeah, there. Well, and there's a lot of factors. Uh, it's not just fuel. There's a there's a significant shortage of, for example, drivers mm. uh, right now in the industry for a lot of reasons and and other factors as well. Yeah, there's also uh, a lot of new government regulation regarding drivers and the number of hours they can drive. Uh, driver health is a big concern. Uh, the, there's a very large percentage of drivers that have sleep apnea uh, mm-hmm. that are just not in very good health. And so the insurance costs and the hiring costs associated with bringing drivers on board, it's a very, it's, it's very costly. And the, and, and the trucking companies try to pass that on to their to the shippers uh, so that they can cover a lot of the costs that are associated with uh, with bringing on new drivers mm. and so as uh, you know some of your mid-market companies look at having to deal with this pricing pressure especially going into the fourth quarter with you know the big retail season coming um, how are you kind of helping them because I know a big part of what you do is manage cost right it's a big part of what you do. How are you helping them think about how to maintain or manage their their shipping costs in the midst of the upward pricing pressure? Well, uh, <clears throat> you know, we work across manufacturing, distribution, and retail. But for the retailers in the fourth quarter, the one thing we try to do is just keep them informed. The carriers are always changing the game. There's always new surchargers. There's always new accessorial charges. And frequently, they're not communicated directly to the shipper. So what we're constantly trying to do is, from quarter to quarter, is evaluating the shipper's profile. What has changed to fulfill their service and their brand promise to their customers? And then compare that to how the service levels have changed from a carrier standpoint. So a lot of our business is just ongoing education of what's happening in the market. Mm-hmm. And so as you're you know, thinking about you know, a CEO or a company that may be going into the fourth quarter, thinking about shipping, what would be the top few things that you'd recommend that they start to look at and consider going into this fourth quarter you know, this year? Well, the first thing I do is start talking to them in March. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> about the fourth quarter. Uh, and John, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, the, the way that we look at supply chains uh, and, and the way that companies look at planning, a lot of times it's a, it's a one-time event. Uh, right now, a lot of our customers are building their budgets for 2016. And once the budgets are done, they sort of put them on a shelf and revisit them once a year. Uh, the supply chain is a, is a dynamic process. It never stops moving. So carefully planning and then planning all the time is critical. Really keeping uh, y- your pulse on the marketplace, what's happening uh, with, the, with the marketplace. Earlier, earlier this year, retailers were very uh, negatively impacted by the West Coast port shutdown. A lot of bit, uh, companies went out of business because they could not get their inventory out. It was just sitting out on out at sea. 
and uh, businesses went out of, companies went out of business because of that uh, they should have been more carefully planning and sending the freight to the east coast into the ports in Charleston and Savannah so that they weren't faced with those issues so you've got to be constantly planning that is the best thing you can do uh, especially when you're moving into the to the fourth quarter mm-hmm. and I, I'm a strategist so I love the word planning right planning strate- strategy and planning are my two fa- favorite words so as you think about what what planning cycle would you recommend? You know, if you don't think that once a year is enough, how often should they be looking at this and at what level of detail? Because obviously they can't do a full, full-blown plan, you know, every every two days, right? So how often do you think that they should be doing it and what should that look like? I'm a big fan of a rolling quarterly business plan where you're updating your business plans on a quarterly basis. You can't, you know, monthly planning is, uh, it, it may be overkill, but really revisiting your business plans each quarter and then tweaking them for the outward quarters are, are very critical. And uh, doing at least a three-year business plan forecast is really essential. Uh, I come from my background is UPS. I spent a tremendous amount of time at uh, UPS doing business planning. We had a one-year, a three-year, a five-year, and a 10-year business plan at UPS. And those plans, uh, the, the one and three year were updated on a quarterly basis. Wow. And so, you know, as you think about your, your company, have you, uh, tell us a little bit about what you think is the source of your company's growth. Other than the fact that Kim has been a masterful salesperson. <laughs> no, it, it, it's really, uh, it's really John's vision. I mean, John is, is the founder of the company, um, you know, his background being inside, uh, you know, one of the major carriers, uh, that that sort of Fortune 500 structure that he had in his formative years at UPS has, you know, has certainly contributed to spend management expert success. Um, the other thing that John's very good at is the financial planning side of the company. He's talking about uh, rolling quarter planning. And uh, that's exactly what we do at Spend Management Experts. So, um, you know, our success has been uh, keep overhead down, keep our eyes open. And, uh, and you know, we've been lucky enough to hire good people. Uh, your, your first question at the beginning of the show was, you know, what are the trends uh, for CEOs? And I think if you look at the small business CEO, and you alluded to the fact that we've, you know, we've had some nice awards come our way. Uh, one is best places to work uh, in Atlanta, and uh, John really has his pulse. Uh, you know, his, his eyes on the pulse of the employees of the company. We have an incredible environment that is very um, casual but business oriented. A lot of remote contributors from offsite. Uh, there's really only two days a week when uh, the whole team's in the, in the home office. Um, we actually, and this is, I think I was the first one to do this. Uh, we actually bring our dogs to the office. <laughs> um, so it's really, and, and one of our, one of our charities is Atlanta Pet Rescue, as a matter of fact. Um, so, you know, I think our success is built around a very serious minded business plan, but, uh, also, uh, creating an environment that is flexible, can adapt to changes in our market and but also keeping employees really happy and hungry and uh, enthusiastic. Mm. So to just pick up on what you're saying, Kim, 
without exception, all of the CEOs I've had on um, who've experienced this fast growth have said that it's the team and it's the, the employees that have made that successful. What I would love to do is to have is to kind of tease that apart, right? Because that at this point is like a cliche. You know, it was my team. It was my team. So talk to us a little bit about how you guys go about building the kind of culture that allows for that kind of growth. Yeah. So, so um, what, you know, you want to focus on having a happy employee and there's delicate balance that you have because if you're going to give people the freedom to work from home, you need, you need to make sure they're, they're producing. So you've got to, you know, you don't want to be overbearing from a management standpoint, but at the same time, you want to ensure that if you're paying people handsomely, that they're that they're producing. And uh, so we set the tone. Uh, we set up a review process, and we've tied compensation to production. Uh, we've moved away from a very heavy fixed salary environment. We don't have a direct sales force. Uh, we use a channel sales force. We only have a couple people in sales and marketing. So people can be compensated. They can be very well compensated if they drive business. And so they're very motivated to produce. We use a, a bonus structure environment as well where we set up clear goals and objectives for people that are not commissioned salespeople so that uh, if they meet those goals and objectives, then they there's compensation awards, there are benefit awards. Uh, we, there, there are social things that we do as a company. Uh, we're heavily involved with a lot of different charities, Atlanta Pet Rescue, uh, Junior Achievement, City of Refuge. Uh, we're very involved with the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce. So we're very ingrained with the community. Uh, we like to empower our, our employees. The way that I look at it is uh, uh, I'm on the show as, uh, as an entrepreneur. Ken's an entrepreneur. We want everyone on our team to feel like they're an entrepreneur. They don't need to be the entrepreneur of the year, but think like an entrepreneur. What solutions can you bring to the table to make this company better and help us grow? Hmm. How many people do you have working for you? If I, if, if I look at how many people are getting a monthly paycheck, it's around 44. Uh, we've got a core group of people in the office, uh, around 12 people that are in the office every Monday and Wednesday. We've recently added uh, a couple new full-time employees, one that uh, was a teacher up in um, up and coming at uh, Walton High School, <clears throat> and uh, we've brought him on board full-time as we've continued to grow we need to expand, but we've expand wisely. You we might, you might add that <clears throat> you might add that he was a school teacher, but he also spent uh, a dozen years inside UPS prior to that. He did, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was about to ask, well, hmm, what does a school teacher have to do with supply chain? Um, you know, I think there's one other, uh, not to belabor the, the environmental, uh, the, you know, the office environment uh, point, uh, and there's a lot of different ways to foster success. Uh, and foster a culture. Um, but I think that our way is uh, a, a lot has to do with healthy competition. Both John and I have heavy sports backgrounds and we love sports and around the office you see a lot of sort of jocular uh, banter and communication and it's a very competitive environment from a healthy standpoint. Uh, we have a a lot of like-minded individuals, men and women, uh, 
who who like that sort of competitive sports approach to life. And I think it's reflected in our in our employees and in our office environment. One of the things you mentioned that was important was the in making sure that the incentives are tied to the um, behaviors that you want to reinforce, in particular productivity. So of those 44 people, how many people are on that kind of incentive-based compensation structure? At least 20. At least 20 of them are uh, purely compensated on driving sales for us. Mm. And how did you go about choosing those people? Because not everybody is cut out for that kind of compensation structure. We, we really value uh, working with people that are big networkers. They have a Rolodex of contacts, and we really just look to them to make introductions for us. Uh, we sell to the C-suite. The, the lower-level management uh, generally uh, doesn't want to see us come in because we, do, we may perform the activities they're performing for the organization, so we like to enter at the CEO, the CFO level. So we use networking to build relationships with people that have contacts at those levels, and they introduce us. And from there, we really we, we take the ball and run with it. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're constantly refreshing what we call our channel partnership network. Uh, we do that through the Metro Chamber of Commerce. Uh, we do that through thought leadership. We speak at a lot of conferences. I'm speaking at uh, uh, Parcel Forum, which is the largest parcel shipping conference in Chicago. We're sponsoring it there. We've got a booth there. So we use trade shows as a mechanism to expand our network. But that's really how we, how we drive that. And uh, the people that most of the people that we work with, they understand that model. They understand that they can monetize their relationships. And because we're just looking for an introduction, uh, it, it, we find that it's, uh, it's, they can, it can be a very lucrative uh, role for them to play without having to do a lot of work. Mm. Yeah. Making money without a lot of work is a great thing. Yes. Tell me a little bit about your business model. How do you guys work? We will come in and uh, provide an assessment for in an organization. We do not charge for the, the assessment. Uh, we will come back to them essentially with a report uh, that tells them whether or not there's an opportunity to save them money without sacrificing service levels. If we can't save them money, we won't waste their time because our model is generally a gain share model we get paid on savings. So we'll do an evaluation, a risk-free evaluation. We'll tell them if there's an opportunity. If there's not, then we'll pat them on the back. If there is, uh, we'll put a proposal in front, th in front of them where we'll take a fixed percentage of the savings uh, for a certain amount of time. And after that time period is over, they keep 100% of the savings. So it sounds to me like that assessment must be pretty critical in your gain share model because not every... Every opportunity is going to be a match for you either. Is that correct? That's correct. There's probably about 10% of the uh, companies that we look at and evaluate where things are in line. Luckily for us, about 90% of the time, things are not in line and there is an opportunity to drive down costs without sacrificing service levels. Mm -hmm. Just to go back to the team, the team thing. So you've obviously been going through a, having a really good run, great period. 
tell me a little bit about why this is happening now in your business. Why do you think that this growth um, is, is happening at this point in your business? I think that right now uh, in the current economic environment where, you know, the economy really has not picked steam back up. In fact, I know we've, we're, we're looking at whether or not they're going to raise interest rates. And there's a lot of concern uh, of what happens to the economy if you raise interest rates. You've got Sarbanes-Oxley uh, where, you know, shareholders are demanding that their companies are carefully monitoring costs and they have a fiduciary responsibility to the customers to ensure that they're spending money wisely. And the use of experts and consultants is, uh, is gained a lot of traction. It's a very, our, the analytics that we provide are very specialized. We've got unique backgrounds and a unique set of experiences that most people don't have. And so when you can bring a solution like that with great expertise, the way that we describe it is uh, rather than being uh, services with a, that go a mile wide and an inch deep, we're the opposite. We're an inch wide and a mile deep. There are other sourcing organizations will, will, that will come in and evaluate anything, office supplies, transportation, IT, telecom spend. Uh, literally, there are organizations that can help you with 100 different categories. Our philosophy is the opposite. We have a core focus. It's on transportation and distribution, and we wanted to be the best consultants in that space. And Kim, what... What changes have you seen over the life of the company that um, have contrib- contributed to the company's growth? Well, I think, first of all, our depth. Uh, we're, we're able to uh, work faster. We're able to work more efficiently now because we've, br- we've grown the expertise on the staff. The one real difference maker, you, you mentioned that the assessment is, is very critical for us because you're right. We go in there and invest our technology, invest our know-how, our market knowledge without getting paid to do an analysis for a customer. And that assessment uh, is really the lifeline of our company. And what we haven't talked about is what we do in that assessment. And we have built our assessment around cost modeling technology. Uh, John actually began this process uh, when he was inside UPS, and since he left uh, UPS, started his own practice, built his own team, he brought on board uh, talent that was capable of developing in-house proprietary cost modeling technology. The Typically in our industry, the way customers assess their transportation spend is what's through is what's known as price benchmarking, traditional price benchmarking. It's where you're comparing prices of sort of like-minded clients or similar shipping profiles of clients. We practice price benchmarking, but we take it a step, uh, a big step farther, and that is by building in-house proprietary cost models. Uh, the carriers have over 200 ways they can surcharge you in one way or another. And our models actually track these surcharges and look for savings opportunities. We have to analyze this data, but we have the proprietary cost modeling technology that reads that data, captures it, brings it in-house, we then evaluate it, and that's the difference maker for us. And 
I've seen our own cost modeling technology grow over the last three years significantly because we have more talent in-house now to not only develop it, but to analyze it. So when you say technology, is this a piece of proprietary software that you've developed? Yeah, and that's really helped streamline processes for us. We've got over 20 different proprietary models that we've developed. So we, we're not just a consulting company. We're, we're a technology company. Does your software have a name? Uh, uh, we call it the Habermeister. <laughs> <laughs> we call it the Habermeister Report. Uh, <laughs> no, no. We, you know, that's funny. We're actually... Uh, we're branding, look, branding opportunity. We're, we're actually... Uh, we're in legal right now on what we can own and, and perhaps what we can't own with this technology. And we are talking about branding it. We've been we've been having that discussion for six months now. But uh, currently, it's it's just in-house, unnamed, and super secret sauce. Mm-hmm. Actually, we call it the secret sauce right now. We, we've we've recently gone through a a, a, me- a messaging exercise. We've updated some of the messaging on our website. Frankly, in 2016, we're going to be redoing. We're going to roll out a whole new website all fresh branding and marketing and part of that is really touting the technology that we've developed because people don't think of us as a technology company they think of us as a consulting company some people think of us as negotiators and really there's a lot more substance than that yeah well which is which is great so to talk about the technology a little bit does the tech does the the model actually go out and capture market data these 200 surcharges and then sucks it up and kind of analyzes it and tells your customers where they can save and where the opportunities are. Absolutely. And then you guys go and negotiate and cut cut all those deals on top of that. We we the process is we put in a non-disclosure with our clients. We uh, provide them of the list of the information, the data that we need to input into our models. Uh, we get that data, we input in our models, we run our models, and then our models run an output that analyzes by line item where they're spending the money and where the opportunity is. We use that and report back to them. Literally, we could be 50 different areas of where there are savings opportunities, and we help them put together a strategy. You know, for, for us, we don't want to simplify uh, the, the, the process of determining whether the savings, but for us, the, the determining whether, whether or not their savings is fairly easy. Developing a strategy to help companies achieve those savings is very complicated because there are a lot of barriers to achieving savings. They may have technology barriers where carriers are integrated into their ERP system. There could be operating barriers where uh, they don't have enough dock space to bring in three or four different carriers. There are relationships that clients have with uh, customers. There are people don't want to change. Uh, there are politics that get involved. So customizing a strategy for every customer is crucial to going out and executing and delivering the savings that you know are available. Right. So if you go ahead, Kim. Well, I was going to add that uh, the savings are really captured through two primary uh, 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 pipelines. One is the pricing and the terms of the carrier contracts and our software is, is reading those throughout the system on every package. But the other is operational and even behavioral uh, on the part of the employees, on the part of the customers, employees. Uh, our cost models will identify 
operational deficiencies as well as pricing and contract deficiencies. A good example is, and a simplistic example is, uh, we'll be able to read. Uh, we had a we had a client in Atlanta recently uh, who had five locations in Atlanta. Uh, we found out there were over 200 people to authorize an overnight delivery. We found out that a lot of the overnight deliveries were going overnight air to a building across the street. You know that was part of the company. And, and 200 people were authorized to send an overnight across the street. And our, so our cost modeling revealed, pulled this up and brought it to our attention. And we sat down with the client, and this was a behavioral adjustment. Uh, number one, they probably needed less people who were authorized to send an overnight. And number two, we had to educate them that had they, they should they had, should just walk the package across <laughs> the street. Well, well <laughs> they could send it, they could send it ground. And it would get there at exactly the same time versus overnight air delivery. Right. And and so as you look at, you know, let's say the 200 opportunities, although they're not going to be 200 opportunities to save. How do you get this is a perennial um, concern with consultants. How do you get people to change their behavior? So you've identified a, you know, million dollar pot of gold at the end of all of these operational changes, but they involve having people do things differently, which clients often resist. What's your approach to, to, to actually inducing changes in client behavior? You have to help them. You have to add, add bandwidth. And in our solution, uh, we don't just come in and make recommendations. We take it a step further. We help them execute. So we have a five to six person project team that is assigned to the execution and seeing this through and providing them with the information and the data and, and the steps. And so uh, we're not just, we don't just come in and make a recommendation and disappear. We follow through in the execution. So we facilitate and make it a lot easier and we do a lot of the heavy lifting. Our clients are very busy people and one of the biggest concerns is they don't, they don't have the time to go out and, and make these changes. So anything that we can do to make it easier for them to implement and change things and make them uh, more profitable where we do the heavy lifting, that, is, that model works very well for companies. You guys obviously work together really, really well. How long have you been working together? Almost four years. Seems like 30. Oh, it's, it's four. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and you started the company about four years ago. Yes. Um, so did Kim come on right at the beginning? Uh, Kim came on about uh, six, six months into uh, the, 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 the start of the company. I actually met him through one of our channel partners, a relationship that we had that was helping drive business. And Kim was introduced as a channel partner. And I was just starting to build the company up and needed some help on the sales and marketing side, someone to really help me drive that network. So he started as a part-time consultant and uh, has quickly made his way up to uh, the, the, the chief operating officer one of the things that uh kim i look at kim as a as, as a mentor because he's he's got so much great experience uh spent so, so much time um as a pro quarterback as a uh a great business leader with uh, with turner broadcasting uh one of the things that we do every year where it's part of the planning process is a is a is a task is a leadership uh, tasking process where we break down everything that i do and where where I'm spending my time and what we've identified is that I was doing, uh, you know, 60 different tasks, 30 of them I shouldn't have been doing. 
Uh, I should have had somebody else doing those tasks. And so delegating work to people uh, so that I can focus my time on the critical aspects of growing our business, he's done a tremendous uh, job in helping me focus my time and energy in the areas that are critical to running a business. Now, Kim, given that you said that the team and and the culture that you fostered has been really one of the things that's made you guys most successful. How do you work with a founder, you know, who's struggling with releasing control and, you know, that delicate balance? Because obviously, you're no pushover either. That's a great question. And uh, a couple of years ago, years ago, I found a, a terrific article on founder syndrome and I send John that email once a month, once a year <laughs> around Christmas time, uh, just in case he's forgotten. Yeah, right? he gets the founder syndrome uh, email. The the first year we started doing task management with the CEO, John, I believe it was you were com- performing seventy two tasks a week, uh, and I think in the first year I took about twenty of those or twenty five of those. Uh, you know, was taking out the trash and, you know, some of the stuff, he'd run in the, run in the mailbox, you know, things that he really didn't need to be doing. Um, so it, that's become an exercise that I think is good for both of us. It's also good for the entire staff to see that the CEO is participating in self-evaluation, is every year trying to make himself more efficient. And I think there's a great trickle-down effect uh, on that. And so as a part of your role, um, keeping him humble and making sure that he... That's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Sending him emails like that to remind him, okay, just in case you've forgotten. Uh, so tell me about like, you know, a, a good story of, of you working together. When was the, the moment? Cause he transitioned. You, I think you said maybe this is off air. So I apologize to listeners, but you said that he transitioned from being a consultant to, to eventually becoming your CEO. When did you know and feel confident that you could have that kind of resource, um, you know, backing you up? And what was it that had you feel like you could start to, to trust and hand over, uh, that control? He, one of the main things that uh, he really started doing was bringing in a lot of business. Um, bringing that in, certainly helps. Yes, Kim. Uh, that that's that's always beneficial. Yeah, Kim has developed a great network of relationships. He's very well respected by a lot of business leaders, and he's introduced a lot of our channel partners. He's brought them in, so he's helped us acquire a lot of business. He's also been very instrumental in helping develop our messaging, uh, helping with the task management. And so it's been really evolutionary where uh, his, ro- his role is, continues to, to develop. He's, he's moved from consultant to vice president of business development, uh, running the sales uh, side of the business to uh, we moved him at the beginning of the this year to the title of chief operating officer. We were folding uh, HR underneath him as well, uh, getting him really involved in other aspects of the business and helping manage some areas that are uh, areas that where, frankly, I just don't have time to focus. Um, I'm still real involved in the finance side and the payroll. That's sort of the last thing to go. Uh, my background's finance. So I'm a numbers guy. Uh, but uh, we're, we're, I'm almost out of the weeds there. I'm almost out of, uh, you know, I'm not cutting the checks to people anymore. We've, we've, we tra- we've transitioned to that. So closing the books on a monthly basis is sort of the last thing to go. Uh, now tell me how you, as an entrepreneur, founder, CEO, 
not get threatened by having somebody like Kim who in many cases is just as strong as you are. I've seen CEOs struggle with that. They have somebody who, you know, just as strong as they are, but it's their company and there's this tension and you don't seem like you're threatened at all. I think a lot of it has to do with personality and ego. Um, you know, Kim, Kim kids that I, that, that I may have a large ego. I don't, I really don't see it that way because what, when we are trying to sell to our client, an example that I will use is that I have a finance background. Uh, well, I have a bookkeeper. I have an insurance agent that helps me. I have a financial planner that helps me. I have a CPA that does my taxes. If I have a finance background, why do I need all those people? The reason is I don't have the time or the specific expertise in any of those areas to do it full time. Yeah, I probably could, but that's not where my time is best focused. And so in understanding what your strengths are and your weaknesses are, uh, not having a big ego, when someone can do a better job than you can, uh, let them do it. Let them thrive and do the work for you and focus the energy in growing the business. And I think the personality and the lack of ego and just the, the overall environment is really, really what drives that for us. What about you, Kim? You think that, that that's true in terms of, you know, if, if you have a, a, a founder or a CEO who's reluctant to relinquish control, is it simply a matter of just willingness to do it? Well, I, you know, it, it's uh, every situation is different. Every individual and how they run their company is different. Um, but uh, the thing about John is that he he does leave his ego at the door. And when I was in that first meeting, when I, w- I was in that first channel partner meeting, and I met John, uh, I, I immediately was drawn to two things. Uh, first and foremost, I was drawn to his personality because he was clearly. Uh, very salesy, <clears throat> excuse me, he was very salesy, but yet he had this financial and almost financial technical background. So he was bridging two different very important areas of a company. He was able to sell uh, his concept and he was able to sell it himself, um, but he was also able to back it up with the analytical side. And that's a pretty rare bird. Uh, and I, and I like that aspect of it. The other thing that I really liked was that he had created a concept and a, and a company whose value proposition was just a, a win, win, win. I mean, I, I was sitting there and, you know, we mentioned I, I worked for Ted Turner for many years. I spent 17 years in the, in the media business at Turner Broadcasting. And I knew very little about the supply chain. And I'm sitting there listening to John's first pitch um, as uh, a, a, about the supply chain consultancy. And I'm going, well, let me get this straight. Um, the company will do a free assessment of your transportation spend. The company will go to work with no retainer and no upfront fees. The company will work on a pay for, for per performance basis only and only get paid on real and measurable savings and get paid in arrears after the client begins to receive the benefit. So therefore, the company is 100% self-funded. You don't have to budget to hire spend management experts. And I thought, 
this is a marvelous value proposition. This guy's a genius, you know. Uh, and uh, I was really drawn to, this is really my third career. I, I had a, uh, a nice run in sports and I had a really terrific run in the he media business. He was in the business. NFL, guys, <laughs> for listeners. And, I, and I, I told you the reason I had a great run in the media business was because I was a pretty poor NFL player for eight years. But, um, you know, this is my third career and it's in some ways the most exciting because more than the others, I really got to choose, uh, you know, this opportunity along with John. And, uh, uh you know, as you said, I think we, we our skill sets complement one another. But it, the vision was there from the, you know, the first moment um, that I was introduced to John and the company. So tell us, what do you think makes John the, made John the entrepreneur of the year? For And I, I, you got the TIE, but then you're also a finalist for the Atlanta Business Chronicle. So w- tell us why you think that that's the case. I, I think it's two-sided. I think uh, it starts with what we just talked about. The vision of the company, the value of the value proposition of the company, the fact that this deep and narrow focus is addressing a need and it's 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 addressing a need that certainly emerged in the most recent recession. And in post recession, companies are doing more with less companies are, you know, if this economy is going to continue to roll, it's not because companies are ramping up uh, middle or senior management. They're doing more with less. And so John saw that vision, number one, that there was a need for this. We like to say we're an extension of your team. We're your bench strength. We're your bench strength that's no longer there. Excuse me. I was yelling at the uh, Falcons game last night, by the way. It was was a big win for uh, new coach Dan Quinn. Hopefully we'll have a good year. Yeah. But... uh, so I think that vision, uh, you know, first and foremost, was was is the driving factor of, of how to be a great entrepreneur. The other factor is um, the blend of the company culture, best places to work, the community conscience, uh, where we're reaching out to groups like Junior Achievement, Atlanta Pet Rescue. Uh, uh, you know, other organizations as well. And that's all really driven by John. It's actually driven by John and his wife, Anna. Well, just to um, to turn the conversation to other exciting things that are happening in, in your practice. So bunch of awards. Or is there anything else that's new and exciting at um, Spend Management that you want to make listeners aware of? We're just going through the, the planning practice um, right now. Um, Getting ready for the, uh, you know, we are hiring. We're, yeah, we're uh, <laughs> we're looking for uh, uh, we're looking for a marketing manager right now, uh, actively in the marketplace. A uh, lot of thought leadership. Um, uh, I was in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal commenting last week on uh, the UPS uh, pilots potentially uh, going on strike. Uh, I write my own column for Parcel Magazine. Um, so there's a, that's really updating companies on trends that are happening in the marketplace. That's one of the ways that we communicate, uh, to, to, to our potential clients is by doing thought leadership. Uh, one of our gentlemen was, uh, uh, was in an article in DC Velocity magazine yesterday commenting on, uh, re- the, the, uh, challenges for retail shippers in the fourth quarter. So, 
we're using thought leadership uh, to drive a lot of uh, material as well as a lot of advice to shippers um, out in the marketplace. What was the what was your article in the Wall Street Journal called? Remember the title? Uh, it, it wasn't an article, but I was interviewed by the okay. Wall Street Journal. Um, recently, the UPS pilots authorized uh, the authorized uh, a decision to uh, go on strike uh, if if they can't come to a new contract term. They've been in negotiations with UPS for over the last four years on a new agreement. Uh, the timing, we don't believe, is a coincidence. This is the busiest time of year for the UPS pilots. This is when the air volume really uh, rises significantly. So I'm sure that they're trying to generate some negotiating leverage. But publications like Bloomberg, like Reuters, like the Wall Street Journal come to us when there's breaking news and we provide feedback to them and our thoughts on on what it means to the marketplace and then that really helps drive uh drives actually helps drive business for us it's a it's a great point and uh, again was part of john's original vision of the company number one keep low, overhead low outsource the sales function through channel partners number two don't spend money in traditional marketing plans the reason being, we're a B2B enterprise, and our services are not necessarily intuitive to the buyer. You know, whether it's the CFO, whether it's the senior vice president of supply chain in a company, they think they're in pretty good shape with their carrier contracts, terms, pricing. So uh, John had this vision before I came on board, which was we need to get out there as a thought leader in the industry and he's done that very successfully. Uh, we have now we have a, a PR agency that helps us in that regard. But um, our number one marketing drive and the bulk of our marketing dollars uh, are spent on thought leadership. And it's it's hitting major conferences. It's placing John in speaking positions and other employees as well. He mentioned the Parcel Magazine article, which is uh, in every other month in the magazine. Uh, these are it's it's amazing, but we uh, and it's funny, we were generating business from the trades, but as soon as we elevated to national media, uh, like for example the Wall Street Journal, Reuters, all of a sudden, uh, it, it was just a, uh, last spring actually, uh, John had two quotes in national media, and we got two calls from two different CFOs who called in and said, we'd like to talk to you guys. And I was on the phone answering those calls. And I said, Why, what made you call us? And they said, our CEO saw you quoted in the Wall Street Journal and told us to go find you. So it's that kind of credibility that thought leadership brings to the table that's really enhanced our growth. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for a wonderful show. Um, if any listeners want to get in touch with you to hear more about what you've they've heard, uh, how can they do that? They can find us at www.spendmgmt.com. Wonderful. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at anonaenterprises.com.